This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Guy here, and by now you may have heard that there is a new host of TED Radio Hour. Her name is Manoush Samarodi, and Manoush and the TED Radio Hour team are hard at work on a bunch of new episodes, which will be coming to you in March. In the meantime, we're taking a look back at some of our absolute favorite episodes from the past few years. And on today's show, did you know that the 1984 song La Di Dadi by Slick Rick and Dougie Fresh has been sampled hundreds of times? But the question is, why? Why has this one song inspired so many others? And what's the line between being inspired by, sampling, and simply copying? Well, on today's episode, we explore that line in music, fashion, and innovation. The show is called What is Original, and it originally aired in June of 2014. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what stands for? <laughs> I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, what's original? How every idea, every invention, every song is built on something that came before it. Okay, party people in the house, you're about to witness something you've never witnessed before. And this song will make you wonder about this whole idea of originality, because this song is one of the most sampled songs of all time. The track is by the rappers Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. They released it in 1984. And the story behind the song... We heard about it from this guy. My name is Mark Ronson. He's a DJ, record producer, and kind of a big deal. I guess the thing that I'm most known for is production on Amy Winehouse's album Back to Black. Or more recently, this track. Don't believe me, just watch. With Bruno Mars. Produced records for Lily Allen, Paul McCartney's last album. I just sound like I'm name-dropping, I'm, but I'm just trying to grab onto the things that people might have heard of. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Anyway, back to that you know first song. <laughs> it's called La Di Dadi. And back in the early 1990s, if you were a DJ in New York like Mark was, it was a staple of your set. It's literally like chapter one of the hip-hop DJ Bible. And it's an incredible song because it's just a beatbox and a rap over it. Well, that's true. That's why we never have... Yet you can play all five minutes of it on a dance floor and have the entire dance floor sing every word of that song. But what makes La Di Dadi more than just a really good rap song and why so many artists have borrowed from it in their own music is that it's full of these little lyrical moments. And those moments, those samples, would become the building blocks of hip-hop. Especially because Slick Rick's voice is so iconic and has these little kind of like sing-songy turns of phrases. All these little like TikTok, you don't stop, and we go a little something like this, hit it. All those sound bites that have become like... And that hit it? Just that moment. It's been sampled in hundreds of songs from Hit It, Aini Kamozi in 1995. They used to hit it. Way back to the Beastie Boys in 1986. They used to hit it. And it's not just this one line that's been sampled over and over again since 1984, as Mark explained from the TED stage. Over the next 10 years, Ladi Dadi continues to be sampled by countless records, ending up on massive hits. Snoop Doggy Dog covers the song. On his debut album, Doggy Style, and calls it Lodi Dodi. 
copyright lawyers are having a field day at this point. <laughs> and then you fast forward to 1997. And the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie reinterprets Ladi Dadi on his number one hit called Hypnotize. So if we come all the way up to the present day now, uh, the cultural tour de force that is Miley Cyrus, she reinterprets Ladi Dadi completely for her generation. And we'll take a listen to uh, the Slick Rick part and then see how she sort of flipped it. Ladi Dadi, we like the party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody where. Ladi Dadi. We like to party. Exactly. That one, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You know, I did the backing vocals for her. You that. did. I could I tell. Know. I didn't want to tell you before this began. That's very humble of you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and there are so many more. Okay, party people in the house. You're that party people in the house? Sampled by Beyonce and Kanye West yes, on this track. You were bad girl and your friends bad too. Oh, Even by the indie rock band Spoon. Okay, party people in the house. It's like a grunt from James Brown or, you know, a saxophone blurt from Junior Walker. It's like it will sound good over everything and it will always make your track sound more legit and more real and hip-hop. And the other thing about sampling, it's like reinventing something to such an extent that it becomes something new. See, 30 years ago you had the first digital samplers and they changed everything overnight. All of a sudden artists could sample from anything and everything that came before them from a snare drum, from the funky meters, for a Ron Carter bass line, you know, the theme to The Price is Right. Albums like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising and the Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique looted from decades of recorded music to create these uh, sonic-layered masterpieces that were basically the Sgt. Peppers of their day. But the thing is, they were sampling those records because they heard something in that music that spoke to them that they instantly wanted to inject themselves into the narrative of that music. They heard it, they wanted to be a part of it, and all of a sudden they found themselves in possession of the technology to do so. Not much unlike the way the Delta Blues struck a chord with the Stones and the Beatles and Clapton, and they felt the need to co-opt that music for the tools of their day. You know, in music, we take something that we love and we build on it. That's just how it goes. So the idea here is that a lot of songs come from other songs. And of course, this is not just true for music. It's the same for film or novels or technology. Pretty much every idea out there. Like we sort of celebrate things that seem original, but like what is original? Well, what's the quote, which is the T.S. Eliot quote, isn't it? Which apparently he even stole from Picasso about, you know, genius steals, great artists. Uh, good artists borrow or copy, great artists steal, yes. something like that. We all, whether we steal or we borrow, it's impossible. Even if you're telling yourself you're not stealing, subconsciously you are influenced whether you like it or not. We'll hear more of this song throughout the show, by the way. It's from a group called Hexus of Awesome, and the song's called Four Chords. Okay, so in music, there's a fine line between sampling, borrowing, paying homage, and just plain ripping off. Here's more of Mark Ronson from the TED stage. Since the dawn of the sampling era, there's been endless debate about the validity of music that contains samples. You know, the Grammy committee says that if your song contains some kind of pre-written or pre-existing music, you're ineligible for Song of the Year. Rockists, who are racist, but only about rock music, constantly use um, the argument to de... That's a real word. That is a real word. They constantly use the argument to devalue rap and modern pop and... Uh, these arguments completely miss the point because the dam has burst. We live in the post-sampling era. We take the things that we love and we build on them. And when we really add something significant and original and we merge our musical journey with this, then we have a chance to be 
a part of the evolution of that music that we love and be linked with it once it becomes something new again. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Which was something that I learned when I was working with the late, amazing Amy Winehouse on her album Back to Black. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. A lot of fuss was made about the sonic of the album that myself and Salam Remy, the other producer, achieved, how we captured this long lost sound, but. Without the very, very 21st century personality and firebrand that was Amy Winehouse and her lyrics about rehab, the whole thing would have ran the risk of being very pastiche, to be honest. I mean, there was no doubt that Amy and I and Slam all had this love for this gospel, soul, and blues and jazz that was evident listening to the musical arrangements. So it was, she brought the ingredients that made it urgent and of the time. When you sit down to like to write or produce something, and you've been listening to all this music, and you always listen to music, how do you sort of separate yourself from what's in your head or put your own spin on a sound that's just been swirling around inside of you? Well, you know, I DJ a lot as well, and still DJ like at you know clubs and all these festivals in the summer. And when it's time for me to make my own record, I really do have to just stop doing all that because you never know you know you've been playing all this other music for an hour and a half the night before you get in the studio like you don't want that stuff to sort of filter into you i mean prince i used to read interviews where he said where he said he never listens to anyone else's music but his own i mean i guess if the songs i wrote were as good as prince's maybe that would apply to me <laughs> but so i you know when it's time to work on the record i kind of put the blinders on a bit more and make sure that you know i'm not too much listening to Something, especially if it's something everyone is making a big fuss about, because that's the last thing that you want to do, have that filter into your work. And by the time you put out this record, you've worked for a year and a half, and someone says, like, oh, yeah, it sounds like Arcade Fire, <laughs> and you just want to go jump out a window. <laughs> Has that happened to you before? No, it hasn't, but but it's, like, it's something that I'm, you know, I'm wary of. Because, you know, at the end of the day, like, I think you'd be really hard-pressed to listen to something today and not be able to at least find four bars of it that's completely derivative of something else. like, And that's why when I see young producers today, like kids who are 19, 20, they stay up all night just sampling straight from YouTube, which is dangerous in kind of, you know, there's trouble lines there because credit needs to go to the people that created the stuff in the first place. But it does make for some incredible, exciting art. And, uh, you know, it does mean that some little kid sitting in his basement in Ohio with a laptop can be making some of the most interesting music around. DJ and producer Mark Ronson. We asked him what he's borrowed for his own music. He mentioned a song called Bang 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 that uses this 19th century nursery rhyme. Uh, Alouetta. Very interesting choice. Yes, that was a song that I'd given it to this singer named MNDR. And a lot of the singers that I work with, they just get on the mic and they kind of freestyle and the first thing that comes out. So I think what she sang the first time sounded a lot like Abu Dedda or something like that. And she was like, oh, what if I, can I make it Alouette? And then, yeah, that's kind of French Canadian nursery rhymes, anything's game. Mark Ronson's TED Talk on sampling is at TED.com. Stay with us for more ideas about what's original. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. 
Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And today on the show, what's original? Is there anything that can, like, we could really say is totally original? The Big Bang. <laughs> as far as we know, the Big Bang is original. And everything else after everything that else, so yes, yeah. kind of, you know, derivative. Yes. This is Kirby Ferguson. He's a filmmaker. And he made a series of films called Everything is a Remix. Because as Kirby explains in those films, every painting, every song, every idea comes from somewhere else. And the basic element of creativity comes from remixing. All of our works emerge out of our influences, out of building, uh, you know, upon the works and with the works of, of other people. Like, for example, Bob Dylan. Here's Kirby from the TED stage. All right, let's head back to 1964, and let's hear where some of Dylan's early songs came from. We can do some side-by-side comparisons here. All right, this first song you're going to hear is Nottoman Town. It's your traditional folk tune. After that, you'll hear Dylan's Masters of War. In Nottoman Town, not a soul would look up. Not a soul would look up. Not a soul would look down. Come, your masters of war. Here that build the big guns Here that build the death planes Here that build all the bombs So that's the same basic melody and overall structure. This next one is uh, The Patriot Game by Dominic Bean. Alongside that, you're going to hear With God on Our Side by Dylan. Come all you young rebels And list twilight sing for love of one's land is a terrible thing. Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. Okay, now there's a lot of these. It's been estimated that two-thirds of the melodies Dylan used in his early songs were borrowed. So I'm hearing all these Bob Dylan things, right? And, like, it's hard for me to say because we're talking about Bob Dylan. But yeah. he stole all this stuff. Like, if this happened today <laughs> with Twitter, like, within seconds after the release of this it's record, like, he'd be hammered. He would be, yeah. I mean, it was a different era. He was a folk musician. And the idea back then was not that you, you came up with original songs. The idea was you took the songs that came before you and you did new things with them. You know, you would write new lyrics to an existing melody or vice versa. You contributed to this body of folk music. That was the idea back then. So he wasn't unusual in what he was doing. He was doing what they do in folk music. And this happens all the time in all kinds of music. So take Led Zeppelin, for example, who used to listen to another band called Spirit. And Spirit were, you know, they haven't really stood the test of time, but they were a reasonably well-known uh, band uh, in the 60s, and Zeppelin toured with them. Which could be why this song is not Stairway to Heaven. It's called Taurus, and it came out two years earlier. They basically ripped off Taurus. Yeah, they sound a lot alike, and it does sound like the opening of Stairway to Heaven is fairly difficult to distinguish from that segment of Taurus. Kirby, there has to be an original idea out there in the world. Uh, I don't really think so. Again, you can merge things together and you can, you can do that so much that it can be difficult to tell where something came from. You know, you can be layering and layering and layering until the end result is really unrecognizable. But I think human beings aren't really capable of coming up with something from nowhere. Like, I think we just do not do that. We build out of materials. We use tools to make things. 
that's what we do. I, I don't think we summon things out of the blue. Even when we think of something as totally new, totally different. Like Star Wars. George Lucas was a famous fan of Akira Kurosawa. He was the Japanese director who made all those samurai films in the 50s and 60s. Just the styling of the Jedi Knights is very samurai, and the look of Darth Vader, like the look of his helmet, looks a lot like the armor of samurai warriors. And, you know, the, the famous cantina scene in, in the first Star Wars. I don't like you either. You just watch yourself. We're wanted men. There's a bragging bad guy who ends up getting his arm chopped off. Uh, that resembles a scene from, I believe it's Yojimbo. But here's the thing. Nobody thinks of Star Wars as derivative, even though it clearly draws upon Kurosawa's work. So where's the line between copying and building on something that came before? I mean, to me, it's about how much you, how much mimicry you do, how much of the other artist you are taking. So if you take a large chunk of it, to me, that is where you're being derivative, you're being unoriginal. You know, I think you need to be transforming the things that you copy. You need to be recontextualizing them. It's about where are you taking your copying to. And you need to be, you know, transforming and, and combining those elements in exciting ways. Now, American copyright and patent laws run counter to this notion that we build on the work of others. Instead, these laws and laws around the world use the rather awkward analogy of property. Now, creative works may indeed be kind of like property, but it's property that we're all building on. And creations can only take root and grow once that ground has been prepared. So it's 2007. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. Steve Jobs on stage at Macworld and he introduces the iPhone. These are not three separate devices. This is one device. It's a complete breakthrough. And we have invented a new technology called multi-touch. You can do multi-finger gestures on it, and boy, have we patented it. So. Okay, so that was in 2007. But a year earlier, in 2006, an interface designer named Jeff Hahn gave a TED Talk describing the very same technology. And Kirby Ferguson actually showed that footage of Jeff Hahn in his TED Talk. Let's hear what Jeff Hahn has to say about this newfangled technology. Multi-touch sensing isn't anything, isn't completely new. I mean, people like Bill Buxton have been playing around with it in the 80s. The technology, you know, isn't, isn't the most exciting thing here right now, other than probably its newfound accessibility. So he's pretty frank about it not being new. So it's not multi-touch as a whole that's patented. It's the small parts of it that are. And it's in these small details where we can clearly see patent law contradicting its intent to promote the progress of useful arts. Now, this idea that everything is a remix might sound like common sense until you're the one getting remixed. So remember that Picasso quote that Mark Ronson mentioned a bit earlier? Well, listen to Steve Jobs in 1996. I mean, Picasso had a saying, he said, good artists copy, great artists steal. And we have, you know, always been shameless about stealing great ideas. Okay, so fast forward 14 years later, 2010, when Google's Android phone started to challenge Apple's iPhone. Steve Jobs was quoted saying this. I'm going to destroy Android because it's a stolen product. <laughs> I'm willing to go thermonuclear war on this. Okay, so in other words, great artists steal, but not from me. Yeah, I mean, you think about Steve Jobs, right? The, the idea that he at one point in his career then you know, admits to sort of stealing great ideas and then later on in his career saying, I will crush those people who steal, <laughs> yes. you know, steal my ideas. Yeah. Um, is crazy. I mean, the the iPhone, which is an amazingly beautiful piece of technology, oh, yes. is all the result of the work of other people, right? Touchscreen technology yep. and cell phones and GPS and the internet. Yep. I mean, like, without any of those things, that wouldn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. So wh why wouldn't he acknowledge that? I think it's a very individualistic fantasy. It makes good stories, talking about individuals, talking about 
Steve Jobs or Picasso or whoever. It's good stories. And I, I think that's what we are geared towards. We're geared towards stories that are about individuals because that's how we navigate this world. So we respond to stories that way. Whereas telling stories about society, about this incredibly complex mass of human activity, that is a much harder story to tell. So how do we start to think about all this in a completely different way? I think it is important to say what you took and from where. I think transparency about what you're doing is is a big deal nowadays. I th- and I think most people just want other people to know that, hey, like, that's my bit. You know, that little piece of that thing, that's mine. I, I did that. And I think just, you know, being more reflective, uh, you know, when you're on the receiving end of getting copied, just think for a moment about where that came from. You know, is it really yours? Because we definitely fool ourselves about where our ideas come from. Kirby Ferguson, he's a filmmaker. His movie on originality is called Everything is a Remix. Check out his whole talk at ted.npr.org. So one of the places where you find some of the most innovative work is a place where copying is the rule, not the exception. And that place is the fashion industry. A lot of fashion designers think, well, I can knock off somebody else's work, but I can't make an exact copy, right? (laughs) Well, it turns out you can. This is Johanna Blakely. She does research on copyright and fashion, and she thinks the industry actually thrives because designers borrow and steal from each other all the time. Here's Johanna from the TED stage. I heard this amazing story about Miuccia Prada. She's an Italian fashion designer. She goes to this vintage store in Paris with a friend of hers. She's rooting around. She finds this one jacket by Balenciaga. She loves it. She's turning it inside out. She's looking at the seams. She's looking at the construction. Her friend says, buy it already. She said, I'll buy it, but I'm also going to replicate it. Now, the academics in this audience may think, well, that sounds like plagiarism. But to a fashionista, what it really is is a sign of Prada's genius, that she can root through the history of fashion and pick the one jacket that doesn't need to be changed by one iota and to be current and to be now. You might also be asking whether it's possible that this is illegal for her to do this. Well, it turns out that it's actually not illegal. In the fashion industry, there's very little intellectual property protection. And so it means that anybody could copy any garment on any person in this room and sell it as their own design. The only thing that you can't copy is the label. You can't pretend like you're Donna Coran when you're not. That's illegal. But why is that? I mean, why are there so few protections for fashion? Why do people accept that? Well, the courts decided long ago that fashion designs are utilitarian designs, right? They are three-dimensional objects created in order to cover naked human bodies, and therefore they are not to be treated as artwork. However, just to show you how complicated this is, if Karl Lagerfeld draws a dress, he automatically owns the copyright to that drawing because it's a two-dimensional work of art. But once he turns it into a three-dimensional design, anybody can rip it off. Because there's no copyright protection in this industry, fashion designers can sample from all their peers' designs. They can take any element from any garment and incorporate it into their own design. So one of the magical side effects of having a culture of copying, which is really what it is, is the establishment of trends. 
Some people believe that there are a few people at the top of the fashion food chain who sort of dictate to us what we're all going to wear. But if you talk to any designer at any level, including these high-end designers, they always say their main inspiration comes from the street, where people like you and me remix and match our own fashion looks. So it's both a top-down and a bottom-up kind of industry. So I've been asking this question to, to everyone on the show, which is, humans really value things that, that are new, right? Right. But, but I mean, it's almost like there, there really isn't anything that's original. Well, I think what's fascinating and what you see in the fashion industry all the time is that the genius is really in curating things from the past and reviving them in the present. So selecting from that massive archive of history a certain button, a certain sleeve, a certain hem length, a certain color, a pattern, a design, and putting them all together in the present moment is its own kind of original genius, right? You're the first one to curate the past in this way. Okay, but but when is that kind of thing, like, done well? And and, and when is it just, like, kind of cheap? Well you do see some very bizarre knockoffs that sort of introduce new styles. Like for a while, the the Kelly bag um, was uh, popularized on Canal Street in a plastic version, so they didn't even pretend to make it leather. It wasn't even vinyl. It was see-through plastic, and they were called jelly bags. And it started a whole craze where the rich girls even wanted a jelly bag. So you can see how this cycle of cultural reference um, can in- reinvigorate, actually, an interest in, in an old and respected brand. Now, of course, there's a bunch of effects that this culture of copying has on the creative process. And Stuart Weitzman is a very successful shoe designer. He has complained a lot about people copying him. But in one interview I read... He said, you know, it's really forced him to up his game. He had to come up with new ideas, new things that would be hard to copy. He came up with this Bowden wedge heel that has to be made out of steel or titanium. If you make it from some sort of cheaper material, it'll actually crack in two. It forced him to be a little more innovative. And that actually reminded me of jazz great Charlie Parker. Um, I don't know if you've heard this anecdote, but I have. He said that one of the reasons he invented bebop was that he was pretty sure that white musicians wouldn't be able to replicate the sound. He wanted to make it too difficult to copy. You know, there's this word, like, there's these words that we use about copying, like knockoff or, or it's derivative. And we have this, like, instinctive negative reaction to the idea of copying. But I wonder why. Like, why are we so wary of it, especially when it comes to fashion, like when everyone seems to be doing it? Well, I think there's an instinct, especially within fashion. People want to appear as if they understand what the trends are, but they want to be able to differentiate themselves. They want to feel like they are their own original. And so there is this anxiety around copying other people's looks and copying other kinds of aesthetics. But as humans, we also want to be part of that in-group. But we also want to be differentiated. We want all of it. We want everything. Johanna Blakely, she runs the Norman Lear Center at USC's Annenberg School for Communication. Check out her entire talk at TED.com. More on what's original in a moment. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. 
Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code RADIOHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, what's original? How everything is built on something that came before it. Not too long ago, a group of shareholders met at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Good morning. Welcome to Tesla's 2014 annual shareholder meeting. And the people in that room were waiting to hear from Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk. And unbeknownst to all of them, he was about to hint at something really big. It is is surprising that there hasn't been more activity from other car companies to to make uh, serious electric vehicles. In other words, he was asking the question, why aren't more big automakers making new and better electric cars? Yeah, I mean, I'm contemplating doing something fairly significant on that front, which would be kind of controversial with respect to Tesla's patents. And uh, Something controversial with respect to Tesla's patents. Because when you're developing a new technology, that's the one thing you care about most, that the idea is yours and yours alone. But a couple days later... Elon Musk was interviewed on the BBC. Now, you said a few days ago that you intended to do something fairly controversial with patents. It's not clear what you meant by that. I mean, are you considering giving technology away? You're on the right track. He was up to something. And a couple days after that, Elon Musk broke the news. Elon Musk has never been one to follow the crowd. Now he's taking a unique approach to Tesla's patents. He's giving them away for free. He says this is part of the company trying to spur innovation and development of electric vehicles across the entire industry. From now on, he said, anyone who wants to take Tesla's technology, anyone who thinks they can build on it or make it better, they can. We're trying to figure out how to accelerate the advent of electric cars and degree that we create technological barriers to that, it's it's not going to happen. Now, while giving away a patent might seem totally radical today, it turns out that some of the greatest inventions in history happened because people shared their ideas and they let others build on them. People like Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin, like, never patented anything he did, and he always kind of released any information about what he'd come up with as widely as possible. And he had a great explanation of this, which is he said he sent his ideas out into the world so that they would attract the attentions of the ingenious. This is Stephen Johnson. He wrote a book called Where Good Ideas Come From. Ideas and innovation thrive in environments where ideas are free to flow from mind to mind and to be reused and repurposed and remixed in interesting and surprising ways. And a lot of the technology we're dependent on has come out of that kind of collaborative network. And Stephen has argued in his books that the most innovative, inventive people are... Building on top of other people's ideas in in lots of subtle and not-so-subtle ways. So you can't think a thought without it somehow echoing somebody else's thought. And one of those innovative people Stephen has written about is a man named Joseph Priestley, who lived during the 18th century. And even though he was British, he happened to be really tight with the American founding fathers. Priestley's one of these figures from this period who made a number of huge breakthrough discoveries in in chemistry in particular. He isolated for the first time a number of different gases. um, Collaborating with Franklin, he was really the first person to realize that plants were creating oxygen. And he did these things just kind of in his home lab. And so we look back at those people in that period and we're like, gosh, they were so smart back then. You know, how did this person who had basically no official training as a scientist, how did he end up being the discoverer of so many things. And I think the answer to that mystery is really that that was a moment in time where we had this incredible new tool of the scientific method. You could go out into your garden and you could discover things for the first time. So in a sense, the kind of the soil of scientific 
discovery was very shallow at that point. You didn't have to dig very far to get something really interesting. But here's the thing. We think of ideas during this time as being completely new and original. But even then, people like Priestley and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, they didn't just come up with ideas of their own. They would build on each other's ideas, and they would actually get together. And they would have these like endless sessions where they would talk about electricity and chemistry and the American political situation and new ideas and kind of religious uh, developments and, and just a whole host of science and social and technological innovations. And out of those conversations, just an amazing series of new ideas emerged. These kinds of sessions were happening in Boston, Philadelphia, Paris, Vienna, and London. In coffee houses. Stephen Johnson picks up the rest of the story from the TED stage. The coffee house played such a big role in the birth of the Enlightenment, in part because of what people were drinking there, right? Because before, what people drank day in and day out, from dawn until dusk, was alcohol, right? Alcohol was the daytime beverage of choice, right? Because the water wasn't safe to drink. Until the rise of the coffee house, you had an entire population that was effectively drunk all day. Um, And you can imagine what that would be like, right? If you were drinking all day and... And then you switched from a depressant to a stimulant in your life, you would have better ideas. It's not an accident that a great flowering of innovation happened uh, as England switched to tea and coffee. But the other thing that makes the coffee house important is the architecture of the space. It was a space where people would get together from different backgrounds, different fields of expertise, and an astonishing number of innovations from this period have a coffee house somewhere in their story. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about coffee houses for the last five years uh, because I've been on this quest to investigate this question of where good ideas come from. What is the space of creativity? And what I've been looking for is shared patterns, kind of signature behavior that shows up again and again in all of these environments. And I think I've found a few. But what you have to do to make sense of this is you have to do away with a lot of... the way in which our kind of conventional metaphors and language steers us towards certain concepts of idea creation, right? We have this very rich vocabulary to describe moments of inspiration, right? We have the kind of the flash of insight, the epiphanies. We have eureka moments. Uh, we have the light bulb moments, right? All of these concepts share this basic assumption, which is that an idea is a single thing. It's something that happens often in a wonderful, illuminating moment. But more often than not, they're cobbled together from whatever parts that happen to be around nearby. We take ideas from other people, from people we've learned from, from people we run into in the coffee shop, and we stitch them together into new forms and we create something new. That's really where innovation happens. I mean, we think about an idea or a moment in history as just that, right? Like as as a moment where somebody says, I've got it. Like I figured this out. And that actually never happens, right? Right. For some reason, we have this need to tell stories about creativity and innovation in terms of eureka moments. And it's partially because I think it's a good story. You know, it's just great to kind of be like, the apple fell from the tree and thus he had a theory of gravity. Wait, that didn't happen? (laughs) Well, on some level, the tricky part about it is that there are moments where you become conscious of an insight about the world. But the important part of it is that It's inevitably preceded by this long kind of incubation period. This is what I call the slow hunch. And the the most important ideas normally have this slow hunch formation. And sometimes that can take months or or years, in some cases for for decades. Yeah. So so in your TED talk, you mentioned um, those American scientists in Maryland who were working at the Applied Physics Laboratory who were totally like psyched when, when Sputnik launched. Right. It's October of 1957, and Sputnik has just launched. The epical scientific achievement by Soviet Russia... And of course, this is nerd heaven, right? Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. And two 20-something researchers at the APL are there at the cafeteria table having an informal conversation with a bunch of their colleagues. And these two guys are named Geyer and Weifenbach. And they start talking, and, and one of them says, hey, you know, has anybody tried to listen for this thing? There's this, you know, man-made satellite up there in outer space that's obviously broadcasting some kind of signal. We could probably hear it. 
And it turns out Weifenbach is kind of an expert in microwave uh, reception, and he's got a little antenna set up with an amplifier in his office. And they start kind of noodling around, hacking, as we might call it now. And after a couple of hours, they actually start picking up this signal because the Soviets made um, Sputnik very easy to track. It was right at 20 megahertz because they were afraid that people would think it was a hoax. And so these two guys are sitting there listening to this signal. And before long, they think, well, geez, this is kind of historic. We should record it. And they start recording these little bleep, bleeps, and they start writing down the kind of date stamp, time stamps for each little bleep that they record. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this Earth. And then they start thinking, well, gosh, you know, we're noticing small little frequency variations here. We could probably calculate the speed. And eventually they get permission to use the new, you know, Univac computer that takes up an entire room that they'd just gotten at the APL. And they, they run some more of the numbers. And at the end of about three or four weeks, it turns out they have mapped the exact trajectory. Right now it's north of Auckland, New Zealand and moving southeast. Just from listening to this one little signal. In 10 minutes, about 1,500 miles north of Little America. A couple weeks later, their boss, Frank McClure, pulls him into the room and says, Hey, you've figured out an unknown location uh, of a satellite orbiting the planet from a known location on the ground. Could you go the other way? Could you figure out an unknown location on the ground if you knew the location of the satellite? And they thought about it, and they said, well, let's run the numbers here. And so they went back, and they thought about it, and they came back and said, actually, it'll be easier. Um, And he said, oh, that's great, because, see, I have these new nuclear submarines that I'm building, and... It's really hard to figure out how to get your missile so that it will land right on top of Moscow if you don't know where the submarine is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So we're thinking we could throw up a bunch of satellites and use it to track our submarines and figure out their location in the middle of the ocean. Could you work on that problem? And that's how GPS was born. That's such an incredible story. Yeah, yeah. You know, here we have this gesture that's second nature to us now. We yeah. kind of look down on our phone to right. figure out where we are, get directions. Or like, where where can I find... Uh, the other day I was looking for Target. And, right. and my GPS was going really slowly and I was annoyed. I was like, hurry up, tell me where the Target is. Yeah, we're irritated yeah. at the idea that like this magic device in our <laughs> hands is not instantly telling us where Target is. Um, and, and But think of all the different fields of expertise and different kinds of problems that had to be solved to be able to make the magic of, of GPS happen. So obviously the whole history of computing to, to be able to have a small computational device with a screen and a graphic interface, um, you have to understand the way that gravity works. You have to understand the way that space works. You have to be able to build the rockets that can put the GPS satellites up there. You have to understand satellites and the way that satellite communications are going to work. Uh, you also have to have incredible timekeeping technology down to a billionth of a second. So that's just that's just the beginning of all the kinds of problems that had to be solved over thousands of years in a way for us to be able to look down on our phone and say like, oh, Target is like five minutes away. Yeah. <laughs> thousands of years went into that moment. <laughs> it better. I hope you had a good time at Target because people worked for a very long time. Yeah. I, I went there at the right time. There weren't very long lines. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? We, we don't like copycats. Like our instinct is to say, oh, that's an original or that's derivative. And and yet we are all like like to be human is to copy. Yeah. I think there is a still a useful distinction between copying and, and to use the kind of musical phrase, remixing. Right? Yeah. Look, we all have to copy, um, and, and to some extent education is copying. But when we're looking at people who are creating things and we're trying to evaluate their work. I think there is an understandable criticism where we feel that something is completely derivative. The problem is when we get into the idea that something has to be wholly original, that's where we get into trouble. Um, and, and in fact, when people seek out something that is wholly original, I think they often fail because they can't do it, right? Trying to come up with something that's entirely new is almost always impossible. And it's much more productive to to think about you know, how do I combine things? Um, how do I take a bunch of things that already exist and remix them into something new? So uh, one story I love, when Apple was trying to come up with the uh, 
design and kind of functioning of their retail stores. And looking back on this, it's funny that, you know, a lot of people were very skeptical about this. They were like, what does Apple know about doing stores? You know, they're going to open these stores and shopping malls and downtown areas, and this is going to be a big flop. They They don't know what they're doing with this. And the normal way you would do this is you would look at their direct competitors in that field and say, okay, you know, we're consumer electronics stores, so let's look at Best Buy or Radio Shack or something like that and see what they're doing and try and do it a little bit better. But Apple wanted to be Apple and wanted to think different and reinvent the the whole process. And they were like, well, we want to create a store that's so great that people will just like come and hang out in it. You know, even if they don't want to buy anything, they just want to be there. So they said, well, you know, what would be an environment that's like that, where, where the customer is really happy and really enjoys it? And so they decided to study uh, high-end hotel chains. Hmm. And so they sent a bunch of employees into the Ritz-Carlton training program <laughs> And had them like take this program, and then they came back and they said, "Okay, so what's the secret?" And and one of the things that they came up with is they said, "You know, the thing that people love about a high-end hotel is they love the concierge. Like you go into the concierge and whatever you ask for, like they're working on it, and it's just such a great thing." And so they said, "Well, what would be the equivalent of a high-end hotel concierge in a computer store? What would that look like?" And that's how they came up with the Genius Bar. The Genius Bar is basically a hotel convention dragged over into a new environment, kind of reimagined slightly. And now the Genius Bar is so popular that, you know, you have to make an appointment three weeks in advance <laughs> to, to actually meet yeah. with them. And and the Apple Store is the most profitable by square foot retail environment on the planet. So who knew? Without the Ritz-Carlton, you wouldn't have the Apple Store. And, <laughs> right. and without, you know, I guess, like the Palace of Versailles, you wouldn't have the Ritz-Carlton. On some level, you could look at each of those steps and say, well, that's derivative. Like, it was derivative of Apple to borrow an idea from Ritz-Carlton, but what's clear is that they've borrowed it, but they've repurposed it in a new way. And that's that's the line. That's where the, the really the, the, the most effective forms of creativity happen, is where you've you know, reimagined something old in a new context. Stephen Johnson is the author of Where Good Ideas Come From. Check out all of his talks at TED.com. My life is brilliant, my love is pure I saw an angel, of that I'm sure People killing, people dying, children hurt and you hear them crying Can you practice what you preach? Won't you turn the other cheek? Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, What's Original? Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour, with help from Daniel Shukin. In the front office, Portia Robertson-Migas and Eric Newsom. Thanks to our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.